0: And welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Ozban, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daft today, Masaqat Yivamot, Kav Chet, page 28. Well, there's a very lengthy discussion at the beginning of this daf sort of trying to understand how we can explain uh, our Mishnah that is on Chavvav. And we have a very interesting statement where Rabbi Yochanan actually, on the previous staff. Basically says, I don't know who taught this Mishnah. In other words, that he feels that this Mishnah that starts off this third parak is not actually a valid Mishnah. And the Gemara starting on yesterday, the bottom of yesterday's staff goes through a whole bunch of suggestions about how could we possibly explain uh, this Mishnah. Um, and ultimately, it sort of comes to the conclusion that yes, we can't. Uh, we can't completely. Um, explain, we can't completely explain this Mishnah because the question, it started with the question of Rabbi Yossi Bar which said if two of the four brothers were married to sisters and the two died, right, and the sisters do chalitza yivam. the question was why don't we tell one brother to do chalitza, right, we should tell one brother to do chalitza with the second sister and then the first yavama actually should be, you know, she was sort of permitted then forbidden and then permitted again She actually should be allowed to do Yibo. In other words, what the case here is, is that you have Ruvain, Shimon, Levi Yehuda. But here we have, right? uh, Ruvain dies, okay? So there's a period of time where actually Ruvain's wife is permitted to Levi, right? Remember, they're two sisters here. Then Shimon dies. So now you have Mrs. Shimon, okay? And what happens here is that because Ruvain's wife and shimon's wife are sisters now Levi can't do anything and so the question is why couldn't the mishnah have said as a solution right that actually the Mishnah's solution is everybody just does chalitza but the question here is is then why couldn't actually what happens is is levy does chalitza with shimon's wife and then Ruvain's wife actually would be permitted again and the reason that is is because initially she was permitted then she was forbidden. And then through that chalitza of Shimon's wife, actually, we should consider her permitted again. And so Rabbi Yochanan basically says he doesn't like what our Mishnah says, which is basically just everyone should do Khalitsa. And so he basically says, I don't know who actually wrote this Mishnah, and I'm actually not the this this Mishnah. Um, and the Gemara then spends a lot of time in the staff trying to work that out. And it ultimately says, yep, Rabbi Yochanan doesn't actually know who authored this Mishnah, doesn't accept this Mishnah. So that's a pretty remarkable conclusion for the Gemara to come to because Rabbi Yochanan is actually an Amora. And so I wanted to just do a little bit of a who's who about Rabbi Yochanan because I think this shows us sort of the strength or sort of uh, the power that Rabbi Yochanan had or how respected he was. So Rabbi Yochanan is also sometimes referred to as Rabbi Yochanan Bar Bar Nafcha. Um, And he basically is what we would, you know, he's sort of this bridging, um, I always try to say like a Mora uh, generation. He's quoted throughout Talmud Babli and Talmud Yerushalmi, um, but he uh, he actually lives, you know, basically he lives in Israel. Um, and he studies with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, uh, but he was a very young boy. He actually was only 15 years old when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi um, dies. Um, he also probably, he knew Rav, that's also a Gemara that talks about uh, that in Psachim and Chulun, that he actually may have known that he knew Rub. And so we see, you know, but he's really sort of like the Torah of Eretz Yisrael because he lives in Eretz Yisrael. And the other thing to know about is uh, but sort of his bar, you know, very, very famous for is rash Lakish. And we had that, I'm forgetting now what Masachat that was in. Uh, but, you know, there was that whole story that, you know, rash Lakish's uh, widow, uh, if you remember, uh, was very, very upset, uh, because she blamed him for the death of Rish Lakish because remember they got into a fight <laughs> and then, uh, Rish basically died because he was upset that Rabbi Yochanan was upset with him. But the thing with Rabbi Yochanan is, and we'll get to that story eventually, he sort of got Rish Lakish who was a bandit on the life of Torah. Um, but the thing, uh, to know he's also described as being beautiful. Um, uh, but the thing about him to know is, is that he really was like an analyzer of uh, of Mishnah. And because his analysis is so well so well respected, when he basically says like, yeah, I don't think this is a Mishnah, notice the Gemara doesn't challenge it. The Gemara just accepts that. And so I think, you know, this little line here, and actually this whole discussion that ensues from yesterday's death, is a very key piece to understanding who the personality of Rabbi Yochanan is. Also, that text was not completely set yet, okay? Like, even though Rabbi Huda HaNasi, let's say, we say redacted the Mishnah, this is only a generation after Rabbi Huda HaNasi, and so there may have been a variety of texts going around about what were the mishnaios of Yevamos, what were the mishnaios of any Masachat, and here we have an example where Rabbi Yochanan comes and he says, I don't actually think this is a Mishnah that was in the Masachat. I mean, it's a pretty bold statement. And it's, you know, they try to get their way out of it, the kebar, but ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately they actually uh, agree with it. So there's a lot more to say about Rabbi Yochanan, but I, you know, and we'll learn more about him as we go through, uh, obviously, Daph Yomi. But uh, this, you know, I think was a very uh, interesting uh, section here because I think it shows you how he's sort of like a bridging Amora. He's a student of Rabbi Huda Nasi. And therefore, when he wants to say this isn't a Mishnah, that's actually an opinion that's going to be respected.
1: It also then means right? like the like, why does it matter? Like because the material is clearly there. But once you say that something is not a Mishnah, then that's like saying it's not it's not authoritative. So whatever goal anybody wants to anybody might have to look to that Mishnah to present an authoritative position, right? When he knocks that down, then they're left with nothing, pretty much, right. or not nothing, but not much,
0: right? You don't know, no, I, I think that's a good point. Um, okay, I'm gonna move on to um, uh, another section on Ladal, and then I'll hand it off to you, Anne, which is uh, the Gemara here basically wants to get into a discussion, um, about uh, sort of the uh, let's say the opinions that are in the Mishnah itself, and so it go, starts by quoting. Uh, uh, another, uh, you know, we're talking about the case here of two brothers who, um, who, who marry their wives essentially before going to the dean And the Mishnah said that they basically need to get divorced. And so Rabbi Eliezer Omer, right? What does Rabbi Eliezer, uh, say about that? Right. So what did, right. So this was the part of the mission that we were talking about. Okay. Tanya Rabbi Eliezer, right. So we have this, uh, a brisa that sort of deals with this again, right? Tanya Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer says, "Bechamai amrim yakumu," right? The Bechame says that this marriage, okay, that they shouldn't have really gotten married. These brothers with their wives, okay, with going back to our original Mishnah, uh, they shouldn't have actually gotten. Married. What they actually, uh, they we don't we we let the marriage stand. It's yakumu. We let the marriage stand, okay. And whereas Mm Ubeit Hillel says, no, actually, what? Uh, Beit Hillel says, no, they actually, they should get divorced. Now, I should just explain that this is actually a tosefta. Sorry, I called it a brisa before. Um, But, you know, this is, and remember, Rabbi Eliezer is actually of the school of thought of uh, Beit Shammai. He follows Beit Shammai, right? Rabbi Shimon Omer, then we have Rabbi Shimon come. And he says, Yakumo. And he says, no, they, it seems to be agreeing with Beit Shammai. Right, And he says, no, they, they can stay married in this case. Abashel then Abashel comes. And he says, And so Abashel comes and he basically disagrees with the real answer. And he says, what are you talking about? These opinions have to be mixed up because we know Beit Hillel is usually Mekel and Beit Shammai is usually Mahmer. And so it has to be that it was Beit Hillel who said, they can stay married. And it was Beit Shammai who said that they actually have to get divorced. So very interesting, like also, again, thinking about the personalities of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, we do have examples where Beit Shammai is more Mekel than Beit Hillel, right? We saw actually, for example, right from our first Mishnah of Yubemos that Beit Shamai does not have this same restriction about the co-wives of an Ereba, which seems to be a more Mekel opinion because then Yubim can actually happen more easily. Um, but here, Abishel is basically saying, No, there's no way that this could be Beit Shammai's opinion. Now, what's also interesting here is what's Rabbi Shimon doing here, right? Rabbi Shimon is not on the stature of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And why do we have this opinion here of this Yakumo? And so the Gemara basically wants to ask. And it says, Rabbi Shimon, come on. Who is Rabbi Shimon's opinion like? This is basically a machlokas between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. There's two different versions of what their opinion is, right? We have Rabbi Eliezer's uh, version. And we have Abishael's opinion. What do we need Rabbi Shimon stuck in here for, right? Like he's not part of this discussion. So Ike Beit Rabbi Eliezer. If his opinion, right, is like, uh, cause he says they don't need to get divorced. So that's just Rabbi Eliezer explaining Beit Shamai. Ike Beit Hainu, If we want to say they don't have to get divorced and you're saying, no, that's just Beit Hillel according to Abishael, that's fine. What is he bringing here? Like what, why are we quoting him here? So rather, what is it that he's saying? What he's really coming to tell us is is that actually his khidishes is that and beit chamai actually didn't have a disagreement here. And they both say that these marriages should actually be maintained. So I again wanted to sort of bring up this passage. I thought it was interesting for two reasons. One is, it's very interesting to see sort of Abishel say like, no, we have to reverse the opinions because it cannot be the Beit Shammai who was actually the more make here. And he's willing to say, so I think we're seeing sort of throughout this staff with Rabbi Yochanan's discussion and here that, you know, they don't always trust the text. Like there is some discussion sometimes, what is the correct version of the text? But this thing with Rabbi Shimon is very, very interesting, right? Rabbi Shimon, like they're basically like, What's he doing here? He doesn't actually sort of get to have, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't actually sort of get to have an opinion here. Rabbi Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, they're allowed to disagree with each other. But what's his opinion like floating around here for? And so the only answer they can come up with is, he's really there to tell us, oh, you know, no machlokas at all. But I think what we learn from here is, is that different, and again, this even goes back to the Rabbi Yochanan piece, different Tanaim and Amoraim are ranked differently. Like in other words, we hold some of those opinions. Um, I don't want to say the word is better, but they're weightier. Rabbi Yochanan, he's got weight. He's allowed to say that's not actually a Mishnah. He's a Talmud of Rabbi Huda HaNasi. You have Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Nobody else is allowed to get involved with that Machlokas. Yeah, you're allowed to say that's not a real Machlokas. That's actually not the opinions aren't right. But you, it can't be that you have like a third opinion that would go up against those. And so I think we, we see these two, you know, small passages that I talked about here, um, is that part of what we have to pay a little bit of subtle attention to is, is that the Gemara is actually telling us a lot about whose opinion is weightier, whose opinion sort of, I don't wanna say is valued more, but we pay attention to in a different way than other Tanayim and Amurayim, which is very, very interesting. And we have two great examples of it on this particular draft.
1: Okay. Um in the interest of time, I'm just gonna jump forward. Um, I would say that the next part, the part that I'm gonna talk about on the second part of a bet here is has potential to be disturbing, um, which you will hear momentarily, or I would suggest those of you who are concerned. Um uh yeah, I like I it, it we're gonna discuss or the cases here discuss also rape. So if that's of concern to you, now you're forewarned. Um, but uh, but not right away. So what happens is that you know the the Daf here is still talking, trying to break down the different cases that were in the mission. Okay, so the case is as follows. Um, right, this is a, it's again, it's kind of like a, a sidebar to the gemara's analysis of the Mishnah that has come, and it says like you know along the lines of this. Once we're already talking about that, I'm a rav Yehuda, I'm a rav, so we have the lineup of who's teaching this. So we say that with regards to all of these women, meaning the women who we know to have the whole co-wives from the beginning of the whole masachet, right? The list of the fifteen, right? So those are the people who are forbidden as forbidden relatives, right? Meaning to uh, for yibum, right? So then. What happens if you end up with? Uh, think back to our case, right? Two sisters who are married to two brothers, and then um, they the they happen to be the avam and a forbidden relative at the same time, right? So then they can't be they can't do the yibum. So then the the gemara here says, in that kind of case, we say, Um We say that we could say, or right? He says, "I am Rabbi Huda. That one who is forbidden, when the woman is forbidden to the brother, but is permitted to the other brother, يَوَمْتَ, يَوْمْتَ, and when the sister is also the Yivama, right? Then we say oh cholita, oh They could actually choose, you know, where are they going to do yibum and where are they are going to do cholita to to line it up, you know, for the listen for the, the forbidden relationship. They can't do yibum, but for the person who is permitted. They can do Yibum or Chalitza, up to the people involved. Rabbi Yehuda, Mechamoto, But Rabbi Yehuda says, this only applies to Mechamoto. So in the case of the mother-in-law of the Yavam, meaning the, the example of the woman who is the mother-in-law of the Yavam, and onward, meaning in the list, meaning, Aval, Shita, B'vai, Dresha, Lo. But not in the six cases at the beginning, namely the daughter and the wife's daughter and their grandchildren and so on. So that the the limits here on how far we're going to say, oh, yes, you could do whichever um, because muteret um, lezeh, asura lezeh is going to be more limited. Okay, so now the question says, well, why? Why does Rabbi Yehuda? Why does Rabbi Yehuda make this distinction between the earlier cases and the later cases? My Tama, because we're talking about a case where you have two women again, two women who are eligible for Yibum. They're both sisters, and in this case, they're the daughters of the of the Yavamim. Um, where the do- the women are the daughters of the Yavamim, but here it says very explicitly through rape meaning it's not a regular case of um you know people get have people have children right but there this is a case of children through rape where the where the women had been raped um, the mothers had been raped, and this is these are the daughters of the of that scenario lomish so there's no case where the the these daughters are the daughters through marriage. So then, you know, certainly in terms of the emotions involved, I feel like everything is different. We're not talking about, you know, the good family life type of thing. Um, We're literally talking about a situation in which there's, you know, the brother has raped a woman and gives birth to a daughter. So, then what happens? You don't have marriage. Is that woman forbidden to his brothers? And so I feel like this gets into the kind of the sickly feeling of how we're going to talk about reap, as it was presented, not even in the biblical times, but in the rabbinic times, which is still a very far cry, cry from how we understand rape and you know how how terrible it is, you know how damaging and how insidious and so on today. But the reason I wanted to read all of this is this is not going to get better. So Rabbi Yehuda's point here is that the Mishnah is dealing with cases of marriage and it's not dealing with cases of rape to begin with. So you can't take the cases about the rules, right? The rules of who's going to do Yibam and who's going to do Khalidz and so on. You can't apply it to the case of people who are sisters via rape. Okay, so far so good, meaning it's not good at all. But that's a very clear distinction between, uh, it's a clear explanation of why he would be making a distinction of when the rules apply. Here's the part that got me. game, so Rabbi understands or interprets me anusato. So Rabbi understands this to be even his daughter from the woman he raped. Now, here is where it threw me, right? Because the read, reading it in context, right? It sounds like. Abai is just talking about the case, right? We're talking about the guy's daughter, a random example, hypothetical guy's daughter from the woman that he raped. On the other hand, (laughs) the first time I read this, and this is what really threw me for a loop, it really sounds like Abai is talking about it as applying to his own daughter that he raped a woman. I don't think that that's necessarily Peshat at all, to be clear. I'm not, I don't, I think the Gemara would uh, be more explicit if they were calling Abai a rapist, but there's something in this phrasing I guess, cause it's just casual, right? Like he just says, you know, even the even the daughter from rape, meaning he's disagreeing with Rabbi Huda. We do find such a thing, according to there is such a scenario that is not something that is unheard of. It says you, know, you want to say that this that all these cases are dealing with marriage, so be it. But you know you want to say that it applies to all the cases. You could also say that right. Meaning you could make you can allow the statement to deal to include cases of rape, or you could limit it to be talking about cases of marriage. Meaning, it's open to that interpretation, it's open to that limitation, it's not an obvious, um, you know, this is what the line means. It, it's not obvious in that way, according to Abai. you can interpret it either, either way. And now we come back to our case of, you know, the two brothers who were not did not exist in the world at the same time, alive, right? But that case, according to Abai, says, well, you you can't start applying all of the examples to a case of where the brothers themselves were not coexisting because that's a machlok at Rabbi Shimon and Rabbanon, whether that was a, a, the kind of case that would really happen. You know, how how often did that really happen? Although we certainly talked about it as if it was very common. Um, so then the the passage here just ends, you know. Um, beplugta, Baplukta lokamire, meaning on that kind of machloket, they're, they're just, it's not, just not even part of the discussion. This is where Rabbi Chia doesn't get, want to get involved because the machloket is so you know whether this is a kind of thing that would be, could be, that would be happening or wouldn't be happening. Meaning where you would have brothers who are not in the world at the same time so establish those cases based on that kind of um, backdrop, according to. Abaye, or maybe it's according to the Gemara, um, it's very clear that Rabbi Pieh is not even gonna get involved in in worrying about that because it's too subject to Machloket. Um Okay. And I just want to note that the Gemara goes on here to talk about, you know, again, these cases of the of Lohay turnover, the brothers who are not who did not coexist at the same time, um The Gemara goes on to bring a case of six brothers, right? I feel like the most we've talked about so far is four brothers. And, um, again, if you're looking at the charts, you will see a good amount of, you know, how to line everybody up so that it actually works. Okay, Um, I'm just going to very quickly now, I think, talk about or go through the Mishnah that's at the end of the Daf. Um, And, again, we're dealing with... uh, as your you like to say the word problems of y- Yivamot. So, Shah Achin, Shai Mehen, Nisuin, Shai Achayot, O Isha Uvita, O Isha Uvat O Isha Uvat Right. So we've got a case of three brothers, two of whom are married to relatives, close relatives, meaning either their sisters. It's not specifically sisters this time. Either their sisters or a woman and her daughter or a woman and her daughter's daughter, meaning her granddaughter um, or a woman and her son's daughter, her granddaughter, the other way. Right. So you end up with three brothers, two of whom are married to close relatives. And again, the reality of this, you try to it only works, to my mind, in, in you know, sordid soap opera land. Um, but I suppose it could happen in real life as well. Uh, so in this kind of case, you would end up, again, with a situation where you do chalitza, where, where the women would have chalitza from the third brother in the event that the, two, the first two had died. Because they, there's no yibo, because again, the close relationship will knock the other one out. Um, will knock out the capacity of Yimun because of the forbidden relationships. Rabbi Shimon Poter. But Rabbi Shimon exempts them, meaning, according to Rabbi Shimon, according to the Mishnah here, right, he, they don't even have to do chalitza, that it's a forbidden relationship that is strong enough, or the strength of the forbidden relationship knocks down the need even for chalitza. Heita achat asurah alav isur erva, so what happens if one of those women was forbidden to the third brother, let's say, because again, because of forbidden relatives, right? And then he's prohibited to marry her, but he's still married, allowed to marry the brother um to marry her sister, pardon me. is Which we've seen this kind of case before. So again, so then that would be she he theoretically could have yibum do yibum with the sister, but because the one who has forbidden him is not considered there's no obligation for yibum at all, right? Um, so then you end up with a situation where there's only one case of yibum. It's not so complicated. Um, unless we're talking about the the forbiddenness, the reason for the forbiddenness that, she, that the other sister is forbidden is because of either the isur Mitzvah or the isur Kiddushah. We've talked about these before, right? The prohibition that comes out of a mitzvah or out of sanctity, meaning we talked about like a kohed and a divorcee or that kind of thing, right? Um, and then they do Chalitza and they don't have Yibum. And again, the point being that the isure Mitzvah and Yishorei Yishore Kiddushah are enough to make sure that Yibum doesn't happen, You can't have ibum, but they don't get rid of the zikat ibum. They they don't cancel that connection between them, so chalitza becomes mandatory. Um, I think that that last point maybe is helpful in the way we think about all of this, namely of level, the levels of, of forbiddenness here. Um, You know, there's a, you're so, there could be a a dynamic that is so forbidden that there's not even a requirement for yibum to begin with because they, they couldn't, they can't excuse it, right? Those are the isurei erva, for example. But then there are other prohibitions that get in the way of yibum, like a kohen and a divorcee, but we're, the zikatibum isn't knocked down. It's just that it's a technical reason that these two can't be together. So, that tech, it's, it's a more technical reason, let's say, than, than the arayot relationships, right? Siblings or whatever, right? So, so, I think that that's helpful, at least to me, it's helpful to think that, you know, the zikatibum, when there's still a zikatibum, there's still the bond between them, we require chalitza. And specifically not yibum because of course there's a prohibition, and then if the prohibition is stronger than that, then there's not even a requirement for yibum, and of course then that means that everybody, all the women, can go and marry whoever they want because there's no, because there, it's done because we because there's no um, there's no factor here for yibum at that point.
0: So I think what we're starting to see is that the second the husband dies there's this bond right away. And then sort of the halacha or the beitin needs to figure out, you know, what, what's going to happen. In other words, is this a case of ibum? Is it a case of chalitza? But I'm sort of understanding more and more, that's what the zika is, is that there's this automatic bond. And we have to figure out, you know, there needs to be a a period of time to figure out what that zika, what that bond actually means. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Vinnie Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadrum website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.